0: Hi, my name is Mike Herpster. I'm privileged to be the director of Southland Christian Camp Ministries. For over 25 years, Southland has centered itself around the ministry of preaching. We believe that God uses the foolishness of preaching to convict hearts and transform lives. Our prayer is that today's sermon would push you to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you listen, would you carefully evaluate your life in light of God's Word and take the appropriate action to grow in your walk with Him? We hope that you will enjoy today's message.
1: You had a good day today, say amen. How many of this is your first year to this camp? Raise your hand. Most of us so I'm not by myself. Um, For sure, it's the first time for all of us from uh, fellowship. I do think we're the best church here from Kansas, for sure. Um, We're not humble, but we're, we're very proud of ourselves. Really, from the moment I got here, and I am a little bit later than expected, so appreciate your flexibility, but from the moment I got here today, been... Just super impressed with with the camp and the staff and the friendliness and the intentionality of everything and uh, the orderliness and and everything going on. I'm just so impressed and uh, I know that that filters down from the top, so thank you, Brother Herbster, for leading the servant's heart and I really sense that here. Thankful to be at camp uh, this week, thankful my church could be here uh, with us and I'm trusting God to do great things. But you know one of the things that really impressed me, more than even the friendliness and And the facilities and and all of that was when I went to supper tonight, Um, I went through the line and got my food and then sat back down and I saw the two beverages of choice, which was tea and water. And so I was a little disappointed and I said, I guess I'll take tea. And then I poured the tea in, you know, the styrofoam cup or whatever it was, Was wasn't it styrofoam? Plastic, kind of the same. And then I began to drink it, and my whole attitude changed. (laughs) Because I realized it's Louisiana sweet tea. And that's good stuff. That's what we'll be drinking in heaven. I'm confident of it. Um, How many enjoyed the sweet tea? Was that good or what? I loved it. And uh, that's a sign of things to come. We're going to have a good week. I've already been acquainted uh, with some new friends uh, young and old and uh, thankful to meet everybody so far and hoping to meet some more good friends this week. Been reacquainted with some other friends. Brother Jones is, is one of those. He's been a real blessing to our church. Has preached a couple of revivals and men's conferences and uh, so thankful for my relationship with him, the mentor that he has already been uh, in my life and I appreciate you being flexible uh, with me flying in late and having to preach this morning. Thank you for doing that. I know that God's going to use Him. If you have your Bible tonight, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter number 15. You've done a lot of fun things today, and I've heard a lot of laughing going on, and a lot of fellowship going on, a lot of competing going on, a lot of swimming going on, a lot of sunshine going on, a little bit of humidity going on. I don't think there's anything more important today than the preaching of God's Word. Not because I'm preaching or because Brother Jones is preaching, but because of what we sung about tonight. It's just worthy of our respect, it's worthy of our attention, our reverence. So I hope you'll sit up straight. If you're tired, I hope you'll fight that. Um, If you're distracted, I hope you'll fight that. Not because I deserve it, you don't even know me, but God's word deserves it. I believe it's a perfect book and we can give it our good, good attention tonight. Now, I want to warn you a little bit about where we're going with, with the four messages I'll be preaching um, this week. Uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of of laughter, um, not a whole lot of humor going on. I love to have fun. Um, but the text that we're going to be dealing with all week is 1 Samuel 15. And if you know this text, it has a very, very serious tone. I mean, at the end of the chapter, we've got the prophet Samuel hewing King Agag into pieces. And I know that some of that could be funny, but it really wasn't funny on that day. And while I like to have fun when we preach and all of that, and Brother Jones will probably do some of that, and I'm all for it, just just know that I'm not angry, I'm not grumpy, I'm not a stick in the mud. This text just demands that we treat it very seriously this week. We're going to talk about defeating the sin. In our life. And so I I want to take your attention tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 15 in verses 1 through verses number 11. I want you to read it silently, I'll read it out loud. Follow along in your Bible. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and lay 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. Subject of the message tonight is this. Take no prisoners. Let's pray together. Fathers, we bow before you. Your word is worthy of our best attention. So I pray that you'd still our hearts, our minds, arrest our attention, Relying on the Holy Spirit tonight to do a work that no preacher could ever do himself. That's convict the hearts that need convicted. Challenge the hearts that need challenged. Encourage the hearts that need encouraged. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do His ministry. I pray for every young person sitting before me. Some in this room need to be saved this week. I pray they would get saved tonight. Some in this room just need to surrender their will to yours. Maybe some even need to surrender to full-time Christian service. I'm asking that they would surrender. And then, Father, some came with a baggage of sin, some private sin and some not so private. Some they're ashamed about and embarrassed over and some that they could care less. So God, I pray that you would convict the sinner, and that you would help us to make things right with you, and by the time we leave, I pray that there would be a sweet peace in our heart, the peace that comes when we know we're walking rightly with you. So have your will and your way in this hour, and we promise to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. Take no prisoners is is a command that has been used throughout the years in warfare. And the phrase literally means this, to be utterly ruthless, uncompromising, or unyielding in the pursuit of one's agenda or one's goal. So when a general would send down this command and he would tell his soldiers, take no prisoners, he literally meant to leave nobody alive on the battlefield. He meant that he wanted the enemy utterly destroyed rather than seizing the enemy as prisoners. The general wanted his soldiers to know, I don't want you to be weighed down. and I don't want you to be slowed down. I don't want you to be distracted by having to monitor enemy prisoners. The objective is just too serious. It's too consequential to waste time on prisoners. It calls for a total annihilation. Now teenagers, listen. When it comes to the sin in your life, when it comes to the sin in my life, God clearly commands us in Scripture, take no prisoners. God is incredibly serious about our sin, and He wants us to be serious about our sin. He's telling us as His soldiers, I I want you to be utterly ruthless. I, I want you to be uncompromising. I want you to be unyielding in your pursuit of destroying the sin in your life. And He would even tell us to not be weighed down. He would say, I don't want you to be slowed down. I don't want you to be distracted by simply seizing your enemies. He would say it's just too consequential to drag even but one sin around in your life. I want you to take no prisoners. And in our text, God comes to Saul through the prophet Samuel, and God tells Saul, take no prisoners. He was dealing with a people group called the Amalekites, and God was adamant that this specific group of people be utterly Destroyed. So I've got to ask, what was it about the Amalekites that, 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 that caused God to say, I want them totally gone? Well, it goes all the way back to what the Amalekites did to God's people when they were first coming out of Egypt. We won't turn there, but you could go to Deuteronomy 25. And read in verses 17 and verses 18 how the, the nation of Israel were in bondage. God chose them. God delivered them. They got to the Red Sea. You've read it in Exodus 14. How that, that God parted the waters. They walked across safely on dry land. The armies of Pharaoh caught up to him, tried to go across the dry land. God swallowed them up in the water. It was an amazing victory for God's people. And God did it all. But yet Deuteronomy 25 tells us, That the Amalekites, instead of fearing God and instead of uh, respecting the Israelites' God, they said, we're going to fight against those people. And so the Amalekites uh, waged war with the Israelites and they didn't do it man to man. They didn't do it army to army. They didn't do it soldier to soldier. Deuteronomy tells us that they smote the hindmost. That means they killed the feeble, they killed the faint, they killed the weary, they killed the sickly, they, they killed the children and the women, those who couldn't defend themselves. And so God in essence tells King Saul in, in verse 2, I remember what they did. And what they did is no small thing to me, it's time for judgment. And that's when God gave Saul that clear command. He said this in verse 3, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Now listen, young people, this is different than other times when the Israelites would go to war because often they were instructed by God to destroy certain things, but to keep the best of the spoils for themselves. But not here. The command is different here. Uh, theologians would say that, that, that God is placing the Amalekites under a ban. That means he, he wants them totally annihilated, utterly destroyed. When, when you look up that word utterly, you're going to find that it's defined by words like this. Listen, exterminate. Eliminate. Mutilate. Those aren't fun words. Those are serious words. Here's why God was so serious. Because I would go so far as to say he was extra offended by the Amalekites. And get this. God is still extra offended by some Amalekites in our lives today. I'm not talking about a people group. No, no, the Amalekites represent something totally different to us as God's people because we too, just like the Israelites, are in a battle. It's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual warfare and we're fighting against our own Amalekites. You know what it's called? Sin. What is sin? Sin. Well, the very definition of sin is given to us in 1 John 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Now listen, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is when we do anything that transgresses the word of God. And listen, if there's sin in your life today, sin in your life tonight, God isn't interested in you hanging on to it. Are you listening? He doesn't even want you to take it prisoner. He doesn't want you to keep it close. He doesn't want you to keep it hidden. He wants you to utterly destroy it. And you might be, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. No, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, these words, mortify, therefore, mutilate, exterminate, eliminate, Put to death your members. And he gives this list of sensual and social sins. He starts with fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Then he moves to social sins, and he says, put off anger and wrath, and I want you to destroy malice and blasphemy, and I want you to utterly get rid of filthy communication out of your mouth. Here's the point. Listen, God is serious about our sin but often we're not as serious about our sin and dealing with it as God is. And neither was Saul. Because verse 4 through verse 7, I read it, talks about how Saul got this plan together. He amassed this arm and he formed this strategy and he was slicing and he was dicing and if you were looking out from the fringe at at this warfare, you would say, man, he's obeying God. Man, he's getting it done. That's the kind of king we wanted. One that wasn't just brave and courageous, but one that was obedient. Until you get to verse 8. Look at your Bible. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Look up here. Saul destroys everybody and everything except Agag, the king, and the best of the livestock. Saul, Saul was serious. He really was. He was serious about obeying God and getting rid of the enemy, but he wasn't serious enough. He took the king prisoner. When God was clear, Saul, I don't want you to take any prisoners. And listen, we can be the same exact way. I wonder how many came to camp this week and you came with an agag in your life. I wonder how many came with the best of the livestock. Stuff that last year at camp God told you to get rid of and you promised him you would. Stuff you hear preached from your pastor and your youth pastor. Stuff perhaps that nobody else knows about in your life, but you're keeping something prisoner when God has told you to utterly destroy it. You're keeping it close. You're keeping it hidden. You're keeping it locked up. In order to get you started on the path of defeating the sin, the agags in your life, I want to ask you three questions. I want to start by asking you this question. What is the sin you're hanging on to? Then I'm going to ask you this question. Why are you hanging on to it? And then I'm going to end by asking you this question. What's going to happen if you keep hanging on to it? I'll give you the first question. What sin are you hanging on to? Saul's name, the name of Saul's sin was Agag. You have to name your sin. And I'm not talking about getting general, saying, yeah, I mess up. Yeah, I've made some mistakes. Yeah, I've got a few attitude problems. Yeah, I'm struggling a little bit. I've got a few shortcomings. I'm not perfect. I'm not talking about that kind of language. I'm talking about naming it. The Apostle Paul named it. He gave list after list after list to the churches he wrote to. I'm talking about identifying it, getting specific about what it is. Not so much so that you can condemn yourself and and you could feel down about yourself, but in order for you to get to true repentance, there has to be humble honesty. There has to. So I wonder if some of you could be battling with the agag of lust. Pornography is like the Christian man's drug today. And it's crazy the ages of some of the young men that I've counseled who have seen pornography at such a young age. And then it's crazy the the ages in terms of how old some men are that I've dealt with and how long they've been married. And most of the time, the men that are battling with lust in their 40s, you listening, young men? In their 50s, refused to get rid of that agag when they were 14. They kept it close. They kept it hidden. They never dealt with it. They tried, but they just couldn't get it utterly destroyed. Young men, if you're battling with the agag of lust, you need to name it. You need to confess it. You need to get honest about it. But listen, lust just isn't dealing with sexual desires. Lust, when it comes to sinful lust, is desiring anything for your life that God doesn't want for your life. It's affections that you shouldn't have and desires that you shouldn't have. If God said, no, listen to me, He means no. I wonder if, if maybe some of you came to camp and you're struggling with the agag of insecurity. And it displays itself in how you, you constantly live for the approval of others. It shows up on social media. It shows up on how you talk around certain people. How you don't talk around other people. Shows up on how you dress around certain people. Shows up on how your attitude is that place, but then it's different in this place. I wonder if some of you are struggling with the agag of laziness. Slothfulness. Lazy at home. Lazy at school. Lazy at church. Lazy when it comes to spiritual disciplines? Hey, I know this isn't real fun tonight, but this is what we need to talk about. We're naming it. I wonder how many brought the agag of disrespect to authority with them to camp. For some reason, for you, you just haven't gotten along with your parents all year long. You can get along with the coach, And respect him. You can get along with the youth pastor and respect him. You can get along with grandpa and respect him. But for some reason you can't respect the ones that brought you into the world. The very ones that God says for you to obey and honor. And and that displays itself in a couple different ways depending on your personality. For some of you, you struggle with authority in this way. You're a spewer. That means you... Loudly disrespect. That means you raise your voice. That, that means you curse. That, that means you slam a door. That means you punch a wall. But for others, you're a steward. You just roll your eyes. And you mumble under your breath. You don't slam your door, but you stay in your bedroom for three hours. You don't return a text. It's just disrespect. Disrespect. I'm not trying to condemn you tonight. I'm just trying to get you to think about some things you might have brought to camp with you. And it's important that you identify these things. It's amazing to me that young people can be heroes on the basketball court with their coach and heroes in the youth room with their youth pastor, heroes in the, in the classroom with their teacher. They go home with their parents and they're villains. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about it. I wonder how many brought the agag of just sinful words, lying words, gossiping words, critical words, complaining words, angry words. This is one nobody will probably see until it really manifests itself, but I I wonder if some young people brought the agag of bitterness, unforgiveness. You're mad at your parents, choices they've made, mad at people in the youth group or church, or mad at God for things He's let you go through. I'm just trying to get you to name your sin. What is the agag in your life? Can I ask you another question? Why are you hanging on to it? Saul hung on to his for two reasons in the text. Verse 9 implies that he hung on to it because of the pressure of the people around him. Look at, look at your Bible, look at it. Verse 9, but Saul and the, what's that next word? Say it louder. But Saul and the people. There now, it wasn't the people's fault. We're going to find that out tomorrow. But they did put pressure on me because you can go to verse 24 later in the text. And it says, when, when Saul was actually admitting his sin, it says this, I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Can you imagine what happens here? Look up here. Come on, King Saul. Can't you just keep the king? Well, why? God told us to destroy him. He'll be a trophy for us. Come on, he's bugged our people for years. We could finally be the generation that seizes him. We could punish him and we could torture him. And on on top of that, he would kind of give us some political power and leverage. Okay. Hey, and what about the best of the sheep? The best of the oxen? I mean, listen, Saul, we can slaughter all the marginal cattle. But what about the prime USDA grade A beef? The steaks we could make with those boys. You got a point. And so Saul kept some prisoners because of the pressure of people. And maybe you're doing the same thing. Because isn't it true that every time we try and get rid of some sin in our life, it's as though Satan sends some people our way to say things like this. Listen, I don't see the big deal. You're overreacting. You're actually going to stop doing that just because you went to church camp? Just a little bit won't hurt. Come on, you deserve it. Hey, stop being so churchy on me all of a sudden. Why don't you even like us anymore? Think you're better than us now? You're going that direction. We're not going with you. And here's what's interesting about these people speaking into Saul's life. Don't miss this. They were his people. You would think it's the enemy saying these things. It was the people close to him. People fighting with him. People he trusted. People who had the same goals. Goals. And often the devil will not just use bad, wicked people, though he's using the media, though he's using our culture, though he's he's pushing his message across every social media channel there is. I get that. But so often in in Christian young people's life, he will use the people down the road from them in church, in the same youth room, at the same Christian school, sometimes even in their own family. And the devil won't get those people to tell you that it's not a sin. The devil will get those people to lighten the severity of the sin. And you'll hear things like this. You're doing all these things right. Why can't you just still do this one thing? It's not like they can expect you to be perfect. And they'll make it sound like it's not that big of a deal. But there's one more reason why Saul kept King Agag. It's implied in verse... Nine, when it says that he kept the best of the sheep. And, and he didn't just keep just a, a regular ground soldier or swordsman. You, you know who he kept? The king. Because keeping King Agag would bring him egotistical pleasure, it, it, would, it would fuel his pride. Keeping the best of the livestock would, would, would bring his bank account some pleasure, would, would bring his influence some pleasure, it would be profit for them. And I want you just to think through a moment, think through some of the agags that we've mentioned, and I want you to, I want you to see the correlation of how some of the agags that we keep around bring some pleasure to us. I've thought about the sins of the tongue. When I thought about watching and observing young people through 10 years of being a youth pastor, I I have found that some young people really do find pleasure in running other people down. It makes them feel better about themselves. I, I found that some young people find pleasure in the attention they get when they criticize and belittle someone else. They, they, they like the attention that filthy communication brings them, the laughs that it gets them, and it brings pleasure. I've thought through some of the bad habits and, and, and the secret sins and the addictions that young people hang on to, and, and I know that it brings temporal pleasure, that, that drug or that drink or that food or that sex or that image, it brings just enough release from reality that it makes it seem like the risk of those things is worth it in the moment. I've watched as young people who struggle with bitterness hang on to that, and I think Brother herbster because in a weird sense, in a weird kind of way, there's just pleasure in holding a grudge. There's like this sick pleasure to making somebody feel just a little bit about the way they made us feel. I thought about covetousness, materialism, and greed, and the desire to have more. There is pleasure in new stuff, but there's even more pleasure when that new stuff gets you more attention. Even more privileges in some way. The point is this. Why am I hanging on to this? It's probably because of the pressure of those around you or the pleasure it brings in your life. It's a good chance. What is that sin you're hanging on to? Did you name it? Why are you hanging on to it? Let me ask you one more. What's going to happen if you keep hanging on to it? Because Saul shows us. There are a couple things that happened to him that I think might happen to us. And let me tell you what it is in short. You're going to experience some very serious consequences. I don't know what preacher said. I've heard several, so I'll just repeat it, but not take credit for it. They said, when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And that is so true. You you can control your choices. You can't really control the consequences that come as a result of your choices. And neither could Saul. He suffered big time. And you know what happened first to him? He lost the opportunity for influence. Look at your Bible. We're studying. Verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me. In other words, God said, I regret that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. God said this before already. Saul messed up in chapter 14. 13 and god said you're not going to be king anymore but yet he's still king well that was a conditional prophecy in other words there's some conditions you continue to disobey me and it's over so he gave saul another chance in in chapter 15 to be fully obedient and saul messed up again and this is no longer a conditional prophecy You're going to see in tomorrow's message that that God has made his final verdict. I mean, he's made his final choice. Saul's done, and he goes so far in the next chapter as to anoint a new king. Saul lost an opportunity for influence. You might think, oh, it's just just an Old Testament king. Well, it'd be like basically equivalent to us impeaching the president of the United States of America. I mean, they are trying to do that. And that's a big deal. So this was a huge deal. And you're going to see in the next couple of messages, this hurt Saul. He didn't want to lose his kingship. He didn't want to lose his throne, but he did. And I know you're not a king, and I know you're not a queen, and I know you're not sitting on a throne, but I'll tell you what you are if you're a disciple of Christ. You're the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. Well, I didn't choose to be that exactly true. You didn't, but when you got saved, God turned the light on. It, it, just, it just happened. How, how bright you shine is up to you. And there's nothing, nothing that dims the light of a young person's life any more than sin. I've yet to see, Brother Jones, a young person... Who is sold out, living for God, reaching people with their influence, who's also hanging on to agags in their life. It doesn't happen. You know why? Because it's really hard to ask somebody to come to church with you that you play on, on the team with when you don't act like you go to church. And it's really hard to ask a coworker to go to church with you when you don't act like you go to church. And so you push yourself in a corner and a lot of sin that piles up in your life and people notice because you're most comfortable around your closest friends. They know the real you. And at that point, you lose gospel influence. And hear me please, that is a big deal. Reaching lost souls isn't just the job of the old people. It's not the job of the married people. It's not the job of the full-time church staff. It's not your youth pastor's job. If you're a disciple, if you're saved, if you're baptized, listen, God has given you the great commission. He told you to go into all the world. He told you to preach the gospel to every creature. He told you to invite people to church. But when you're living in sin, it's really hard to influence. I've seen, we run bus routes, and I, I've seen those who ride on the bus get saved. They have younger siblings. They have parents that aren't saved. And they, they ask for prayer. Will you pray for me that my mom and daddy get saved? My dad, who's been the pastor of our church nearly 40 years, got saved as a bus kid. Prayed for 25 years for his parents to get saved, and they did. It's an awesome story. And some of our bus kids have said the same thing, but then they got caught up in some sin. And I've watched how they, they really can't influence those in their home whenever they're living in sin. It doesn't make sense to their lost parents that their life has really been changed, that Jesus is really making a difference when they come home and, and, and they have attitudes. And they're rebellious. And they're lying. Are you following me, young people? That's not the only consequence. There's one more. And it's sad. Look at the end of verse number 11. We're almost done. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. Look up here. When you don't deal with your sin and you hang on to it, You grieve the hearts of those who love you and who have invested the most into you. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs 17, verse 25. Listen. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. When you live in sin, you don't just disappoint mama. You don't just make her sad for a few minutes. When you go home and you're rebellious, when they catch a lion, when you're backsliding and they're praying for you, but you're not responding to the preaching, your dad's not just a little bit disappointed. He's grieved in his heart. When Samuel heard that this was no longer a conditional prophecy and God was done with King Saul and he was moving on to King David. He cried unto the Lord all night long. And it makes my mind, it makes my mind go back to when I was a teenager. 13, 14 years old, and my big brother was 16, and 17 years old. My big brother went to heaven a little over a year ago. And when he went to heaven, he was right with God. I'm so thankful for that. He was heading up the children's ministry in his Baptist church, married a good Baptist girl, raising his kids to love the Lord. Man, he was a good guy. But from about 15 years old to 18 years old, I can remember laying in bed and my brother would come home past curfew. My dad would confront him and my brother would yell back. I can remember times when my brother got so rebellious that he just started walking out of the house. I had to watch my dad physically restrain him. I had to watch my brother swing a fist at my dad. In my bedroom. My brother got arrested senior year of high school. I remember my dad and mom coming home that night after he was taken an hour north of us to Garden City to the juvenile detention center. And I could hear my mom just sobbing. She wasn't just praying a cute little prayer like she'd lost it. And my dad saw me. Thinking in his heart, I'm just being very honest with you. Thinking in his heart, I, I, I'm going to lose my ministry. Lose my boy. Lose my testimony. Crying out to God, what do we do? I'm thankful my brother got right with God. And I'm not saying that just because it makes me feel better about him. I'm telling you, he really got right with God. There were days, every birthday that my dad had, every birthday my mom had, my brother would call them. He would love on them. I read some notes that he wrote back to my dad, apologizing for the depth of grief that he caused them. Not just one note. Piles of notes in which he would write back saying, Dad, I'm sorry. Mom, I'm sorry. He's told me and my little sister Tiffany, I'm sorry you had to see that. I don't know if that's the story of what goes on in your home. But please hear me. If you're, if, you're, if you're failing to defeat your sin, whether that be words, whether that be an attitude, whether that be a relationship you're hiding behind your parents' back, whether that be a secret, whatever the case might be, listen to me, you're making your mom sad. You're heaviness to her. Your dad is carrying a weight of burden and inward Bitterness thinking, have I not been the dad that I'm supposed to be? I have no answers. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. I say this, and they react this way. I'm gentle, then they go this way. I'm hard, then they do this. What do I do, God? And it's not just your parents. It's the Samuels in your life. It's your preacher. It's your youth pastor. It's a youth pastor's wife. It's the people that have invested into you spiritually. It's those that bring you on the bus. And when you fail to defeat the sin in your life, and they have to watch that sin defeating you and take you down the destructive path. Don't think that they just sleep well at night. Preachers struggle with that stuff. The Bible says they're, they're your shepherd. And when one of their sheep stray, any good shepherd struggles with that. And your bitterness and grief and heaviness to their heart. So what happens if you keep hanging on to it? Well, you'll lose your influence. You'll grieve those that love you. If I could just sum up this text so far in a statement, it would be this. If you don't destroy your sin, it will destroy you. Oh, please don't take me as just some old preacher up here telling you what preachers are supposed to say. I'm dead serious. If you don't destroy your sin, it will destroy you. So what sin in your life are you hanging on to? You know what I want you to do tonight? I want you to name it. Maybe I have named it. Maybe I haven't. But I want you to be honest about it. What is the agag you keep locked up in your life? And then let me ask you this. Listen, is what you're gaining by hanging on to that sin really worth what that sin will eventually cost you? Does the game of short-term pleasure through that sin outweigh the long-term pain of losing a God-given opportunity to influence? Does the gain of pleasing people you hang out with really outweigh the pain of grieving those people who love you and who are invested in you? I want to ask every saved teenager in here if you would search your heart. And if God's revealed an Agag in your life, I'm going to ask you to take the first step of defeating that Agag, and that's identifying it, naming it, getting honest about it. It's called confession. And privately before God at an altar tonight, I'm going to ask you to say, God, I am guilty. I'm keeping something prisoner that you told me to utterly destroy. And then to the teenager in here, who's lost in their sin. Listen, you can't defeat sin until you've met a Savior. Sin will eat you up. Right now, if you're not saved, sin has power over your life. You are condemned. You need to be justified. You need to be forgiven. Hear me, Jesus died To pay the price for that sin. And if you'll believe that. If you'll place your faith in that. If you'll repent of that sin. Jesus said he will give you everlasting life. And when you get everlasting life. This is really great. You're no longer under the power of sin. Oh it's present. But it doesn't have to be that powerful. Because now you have a risen savior inside of you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so I want to ask you, teenager, if you're lost, I want to ask you. When when the saved teenagers come forward to deal with the Agags in their life, I want to ask you to come forward to accept the Savior into your life. There's counselors here that want to talk to you. Somebody you're comfortable with, somebody you trust. There's already been some that have been been saved this week already. Maybe there's more. Don't put it off.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. May the message you've just heard be truth that transforms your heart and life. Christ loves you and wants you to grow in His grace through salvation and sanctification. If you've never placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, we'd love to talk to you personally. Please give us a call at 318-894-9154 or shoot me an email at mherpster at southlandcamp.org. Christ has promised eternal life and a life worth living if you will only believe in Him. May the Lord bless you in your pursuit of Christ-like living. Tune in next time right here for another message on the Southland Podcast.